So if you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans to chapter 9, verse 6. When you think of the, the various books of the Bible, these, these letters that were written, most of them were intended to be read at a church and, and read in, in their entirety to the church. And so they would sit down and they would read these together and, and, and it would be one point after another point after another point and, and they would go all the way through. But they're also so deep as it's the very inspired word of God. Um, every, every jot, every tittle, every, the smallest mark is, is, is perfect. It's exactly what God would have for us that, that you can not only go over the surface and look at it quickly, but you can dig deep into God's word and do it for a lifetime and, and still long for more. And we've... Um, We've spent a lot of time in the book of Romans over a year now, and God has been teaching us so much about who he is, about, about who we are. Um, he, he, he's so clear all the way through, saying things like, there's none righteous, no, not one. Saying things like, there's none that seek after me. Going through and, and making it so clear that that. We as, as a people are, are sinners. Not only are we sinners, but we're told that we're, we're, we're haters of God. We wanted nothing to do with him. We are running in a direction opposite of him. And yet he has saved us. And he goes through and talks about this salvation. And it's a salvation that's not of ourselves, but it's a salvation that comes from God. Salvation that's not based upon our works, but it comes to us by faith. That we look and we see what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. And we say... All of my sins have been placed upon him, and all of his righteousness is placed upon me. And I'm, I'm grafted into the body. I'm, I become adopted child of God. I become his bride, and, and, and that we get to spend eternity with him. And he's changed us. He's radically transformed us. He's given us a new heart. He's made us new creations in him. The old things are gone, and everything is new. And, and, and we, as we looked at in Romans 8, there's nothing that can separate us from his love. There's absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God who has radically transformed us. And so we, we come to a place in, in studying the book of Romans to where our view of God, God is incredibly high and our view of ourselves is hopefully incredibly low. And, and we find that our, our hope and our joy and any kind of, of self-esteem that we would... Um, have would be not in who we are, but in a God who loves us, that he loves us. And so we, we look at, at Romans chapter 9, knowing that there have been eight chapters before this. Um, looking at Romans chapter 9 in, in, in light of Scripture as a whole, and come to a place of, of being able to see God as great. Not only do I want to preface going into Romans chapter 9 with that, but I want to also preface Romans chapter 9 and the, the, the section that we'll be going through. Um, in light of, I, I think the church as a whole, um, has specifically over the last century, has presented God in a much different light than he presents himself in the pages of Scripture. I think that, we have heard 
so many times a picture or seen a picture of God that appears to be a God who is incredibly frustrated, um, a God who wants so badly to see things happen, but nobody's working with him properly, um, a view of God in, in which man is big and he just treasures us because we're so worthy of so much and a God who just wants so badly things but cannot and is unable to perform what he desires to do. And I don't see that in the pages of Scripture, nor as we go through the book of Romans and specifically this section of Romans chapter 9, will you find him to be the pathetic God that so often he's presented as. He is not pathetic. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He controls all things. There's nothing that's too hard for him. There's no one that can stop him. He does whatsoever he wills to do, both in heaven and here on earth. He will accomplish his purposes. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And in the end, all of us will praise him forevermore because he is the King of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And as we look at Romans chapter 9, we will find that to be the case. We will not see him as being a pathetic God. We'll see him as being one who is very sovereign, totally in control. And, um, and I pray that as we look at this, and I would venture to say that there will not be a, certain, a, a single person in this sanctuary this morning who won't leave this particular section of scriptures with some questions. Um, you'll, you'll leave this particular section of scripture with, with this, this file in the, the back of your mind that is labeled needs more information. And, and that will come someday, specifically when we enter into glory. Um, so there will be a certain amount of mystery as we go through this. But I pray that in the forefront of our minds would be the thought of, oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves me. He loves me. And so with that, Let's look at Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Verse 6 comes to us following Paul speaking specifically about the people of Israel. He has said I, in chapter 9, verse 3, For I, I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, for my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. He had just said that he has great sorrow and continual grief in his heart because he so, he so badly wants his countrymen, the Israelites, to be saved. Now remember that those that are reading this would have been reading this with the idea that why are so many of the Israelites not following Christ as their Messiah? And so some of them maybe are looking at, at the circumstances and seeing the persecution that's coming upon the Christians, seeing the persecution that's coming upon Paul, seeing the persecution that's coming upon the remnant, those that are, were Jews that are now following Christ, and seeing incredible persecution that's coming towards them, specifically from the other Jews, but even throughout the Roman Empire. And thinking back to the entirety of the Old Testament and looking at what it says and saying, why are they not saved then? If he is the Messiah and if he has come, why is it that they are not following him? And so we, we come to, to verse 6 in light of that. Verse 6 says this, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. 
but in Isaac your seed shall be called. He begins by saying it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. It's not that, it's not that God's word is not true and the covenants that he has made, the promises that he has made have not come to fruition. What he's saying is not all of Israel are Israel. We saw this before in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, where he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Not all of Israel is Israel. Not all of the people who live there, not all of the Jews, as far as their, their ancestry, not all of them are truly those who who are of the seed of, of, of promise, as, as we'll look at. Um, if you were to go to Israel today, you would find that there are, are, are some who definitely follow Christ. Um, if we were to go around this room, we would find many who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who come from a Jewish background. Um, but you'd also go and you'd find many who are still looking for their Messiah. You'd find many who, who look at, at Christ and they don't long for him, they abhor him. And God would say, not all of Israel is Israel. In John chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, talking about Christ, Christ was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own meaning the Israelites, and his own did not receive him. But as, in, as many as received him, to, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Many didn't receive him, but those that did, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believed in his name. And they were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. God changed them. There was a circumcision that took place in the heart where there was a heart of stone and it was converted into a heart of flesh, just like it has been for all of us. Our hearts were like rocks and God changed us. His Holy Spirit drew us unto himself. We look and, and he tells us in, in verse 7, nor are they all children because they are, they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. In verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul now, as the, the Holy Spirit's inspiring him to write these things, he gives an example. Not all of Israel is Israel. Not all that are of the seed of Abraham are those which would be considered those that are children of the promise. And so he begins by giving an example. And he begins by referring to Isaac and Ishmael. Two children. Both came from, from Abraham. But we're told that Isaac was the child of the promise. You look in, and most everybody here would know the story, but you, you know that God gives a promise to Abraham. Um, tells him to leave his country people to go to the land that he's going to show them and and from him all the nations of the earth would be blessed and 
Abram's there and his wife Sarai is, is one who is barren, unable to have children. And so Abraham's there and he hears this promise from God that through his descendants all the people of the earth would be blessed and no child comes. There finally comes this place where Sarai, knowing that, that it, it had to be difficult for her, wouldn't you think? I mean, here's Abram, the, the name, even his very name, meaning father of, of many. And, and having it be where he tells them of the promise, he tells them of what God said, he tells them of the covenant, and yet she has not had any children at all. Come, coming to a place of just incredible anguish to where she says, take my Egyptian maidservant, Hagar. Take her to be your wife. She's my maidservant. Take her. Have, have a child with her. And Abraham, okay, I'll do that. Should he have done that? Absolutely not. But he did. And she has a child. Child's name is Ishmael. But God comes back to Abraham and says, in Genesis 17, verse 15, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. And I'll bless her and also give you a son by her. And then I'll bless her, and she shall be a, a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? He falls and he laughs. I have Ishmael. I already have Ishmael. Are you, are you really going to bring a child, a son, to a man who's a hundred years old? And Sarah who's 90 years old, she's going to bear a child. My wife's 90 years old. She's far beyond the years of, of having children, we're told. Abraham says to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He's just been told that Sarah is going to have a son. His response is, she's 90 Ishmael, have my son Ishmael be the one. God says, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. No, you're, you're, you're going to have a son. It's coming from Sarah, and I want you to name him Isaac. And my covenant's going to be with him for an everlasting covenant. And all the descendants after him. It's, it's going through Isaac. We see even Sarah coming to the place of hearing this and laughing. She says in, in Genesis 18, verse 13, um, I'm sorry, verse, verse 12, she laughs and says, after I've grown old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also. 
Abraham's old also. And God, God comes to Abraham and he says, why did, why did Sarah laugh? Um, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? Why did she laugh? She's 90 years old. You're 100 years old. But I told you that you're going to have a son and it's going to come through Sarah and his name is to be called Isaac. Why did she laugh? And then the next verse is just incredible where he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? It doesn't matter that she's 90 years old. It doesn't matter that you're 100 years old. Is there anything that is too hard for the Lord? And so we see here as we, as we look at this, God says specifically, it's through Isaac that your seed shall be called. Well, there's those that can look at this and say, well, of course. I mean, Ishmael was the result of the work of man, the work of the flesh, going through and trying to come up with another alternative, trying to help out God. It wasn't faith. It wasn't that they just believed God and thought this should be a good idea, that, you know, let's, let's just trust him. He gave us a promise. There's nothing that's too hard for him. Surely he could accomplish this. But instead they said, take Hagar, my handmaiden, the Egyptian. Take, take, take her. Have a child with her. So clearly that was the work of the flesh. And so... Obviously, God picked Isaac rather than Ishmael because Ishmael's a result of the flesh. Isaac is the result of the promise. Isaac's coming through Sarah. Isaac's the result of God doing something where there's nothing too hard for him. And even when she's 90 years old, she has a child. It's miraculous. God did it. Clearly, God chose Isaac because Isaac is the result of faith, which he was. But it goes on. Verse 10. In Romans 9.10 it says, and, and, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. So he shifts to another example. Here, Hagar was an Egyptian. She was a Gentile. She was not of God's people. But now you have, now you have Rebekah. So Isaac and Rebekah are now together. When we think of the forefathers, we always think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people whom God had made covenants with. And so Paul is making a point. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all of the seed of Abraham are truly the seed of promise because, look, you have, even from his own children, Isaac and Ishmael. And now think of Rebekah. Rebekah is one in whom she came from his own family. They went out and and found her in Padamaram, but it was one of his cousins. It was related to his mother. And so she, she is the one in whom God specifically brought for Isaac. And she conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac. She had a child, and it came from Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the one in whom you all would look to. And there's twins. There's twins. Twins in her womb at the exact same time. From one man, twins. In Romans 9, 11, it says, For the children 
not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. This is just a powerful verse. I mean, this, this is one of those verses that just screams out as far as the sovereignty of God. You, you look at a, a passage like this, and you're picturing two children that are in the womb of Rebecca. And God says, they're not yet born. They hadn't done anything good or evil. It wasn't that God was looking at them and saying, well, well gosh, you, you're, you're good, Jacob, Esau, you're not. Um, look at all the things that you did. Therefore, I'm, I'm going to choose Jacob. He, he tells us specifically, no, they weren't born yet. They hadn't done anything good or evil. That the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. It's very specific. And part of the reason why we're covering such a large section of scripture this morning is because I, I find it critical that, that we just look at what the text says. It's, it, uh, it's not adding to it. It's just looking at it. And I don't think it's hard to understand. I think there's incredible mystery in it all. But I don't think it's hard to understand. You're, you're looking at a section where he's just saying, think of the twins, Jacob and Esau. They weren't born yet. They hadn't done anything good or evil. And what does God do? His purposes are brought forth. Purpose of God according to election. Now, when we start talking about this, this is one of those subjects in which you see churches divide over. You see denominations divide over. You have all kinds of denominations within Protestant Christianity, and, and, and many of them divide over issues that are like this. Um, but you can't, if it's been in your mind, I don't, I don't believe in election. I don't believe in predestination. I don't believe in any of those things. You're going to have a really difficult time when you go through Scripture as a whole. You're going to, you're going to find it coming up over and over and over and over and over again. Um, we can't just say we, we don't believe in it. I mean, you, you would have to say, I don't believe in this text. It's, it's the text that's saying that. Um, we, we have a, a, a view of, of man that promotes man so high that... that our ability to make all of our decisions is something that's just so critical. And, and we, we have minds that, that shift to, well, is that fair? Or is that not fair? If God predestined some to salvation, is that fair for everybody else? And our minds go in that direction. And uh, honestly, fair, there is not one of us here in this congregation that wants fair. Fair is eternity in hell for all of us. That's fair. Fair is all of us go spend eternity in hell. We don't want fair. We want grace. We don't want fair. We want mercy. When, when God, who clearly does, send people to hell for all eternity, he does so and he's just in doing so. And when you have a proper view of man, when you look in Scripture, you see the depths of man's sin and the wickedness that's there. When you go through Romans chapter 3 and look at the details of who man is, when you're able to see sin for the way that God sees sin, and you're able to see his holiness as he describes himself in the pages of Scripture, we will join all of those in heaven where it tells us in the book of Revelation that we'll be saying, just and true are your ways, O God. You are just, you are true, you do things, and you do all things that are right. We will be saying that, I assure you, 
we'll be saying that. And it's not that we're going to be saying, this isn't fair, I don't think this is right. We'll be saying, God, you're just and you're true. But he tells us that God's purpose according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It's not based on their works. It's not based upon what they did. It's not based upon anything that they could ever do. It's based upon him who calls. For, for me, it brings me back to, oh, how he loves me. He loves me. It wasn't because he saw something lovable in me. It wasn't based upon what I could do. It wasn't based upon my works. And I recognize whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We must believe in him. Whoever receives him, he gives the right to become children of God. We must receive him as our Lord and as our Savior. But how does that come about? It's not based upon our works, but it's based upon him who calls, we're told here. It's based upon him who calls us. None of us ever pray like, thank you, God, thank you, thank you that I was so smart. I'm brilliant. I figured it all out. I just, you know, when I set my mind to something, I always work it out. You know, and I set my mind to figure out how do I get to heaven, and I figured the whole thing out. I am brilliant. None of us talk like that, do we? We we, we talk like, God, thanks for saving me. Thanks for taking me out of the pit that I was in. And you, you caused my eyes to be open and you brought me to Christ. Your Holy Spirit drew me. I remember that time in my life where I was going through this and you used that. You put people in my life and circumstances and I heard the gospel and you spoke to my heart so clearly and you brought me to salvation. Thank you for saving me. We recognize that, don't When we pray, we recognize that God saved us. And so it wasn't based upon works, but it's based on him who called you. And he calls you by the sweetness of his Holy Spirit. And then in verse 12, it says, It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Now this is something where in that particular society, um, the older was one in whom had the highest position in the family. Um, And... uh, Frequently would receive the greater portion of the inheritance, had the greatest um, responsibility within the family. Um, I want to make it clear that that's not how it is in our culture today, being that I have an older brother. Um, He's not here, but could you let him know that? Um, He is older. He tries to fool people that he's not older, but... He is much older. I want you guys to know. But here you see that it's not just one. There's two children in the mother's womb. And it's not, well, obviously it's Jacob because he's the older one. He's he's the younger one. We're told here that God says to, to her before in Genesis 25, that the older one will serve the younger. That's how it's going to work. God says to her, there's two nations that are in your womb, two peoples who shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Genesis 25, 23. So in this case, both children came at the same time 
They were not the work of the flesh, but the result of prayer. They prayed. God gave them miraculously a child. Um, we're told in, in Genesis 25, 21, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. It's a result of prayer. It wasn't Hagar and Ishmael. It's a result of prayer, trusting in the promises. Isaac pleading. God gives her two children in her womb, and the older is to serve the younger. And then in in verse 13, it says, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now this is a verse in which it's difficult for us to comprehend. Jacob I love, but Esau I've hated. And I've heard different interpretations of it. There's some that would say, Jacob I love, but Esau I loved less. Um, I don't think that's an accurate interpretation. It, it, it's speaking of condemnation that's going to send them for eternity in hell. So whether it's hated or loved less, the judgment of God is still fully coming upon Esau. There's some that would look and say, well, it's talking about two nations, Jacob and Israel and Esau, which would come the Edomites. And I don't think in the context that we look at that we can say it's just it's two nations, it's two, two peoples. I think it is. I, I mean, you see, you see Esau with the Edomites and the judgment that came upon them and the wickedness in which they had. And you say, see Jacob and Israel and God blessing them throughout the centuries. But it's just more people. It's not that we can come to a place of, of okay, good, it's just two nations. He, he just says clearly, Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated. Now, our, our emotions are such in which they're, they're yeah, you, you can love someone, you can hate somebody. Um, God, his ways are far beyond ours. Far beyond ours. We can't take God's emotions and all that God is and, and try to translate it into our minds and how small we are and what we do. But this is what the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write. He knows that this statement is going to get our attention. It's going to raise a lot of questions. He he knows that when he says something like, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated, we're going to say, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. I don't don't like that. He knows that we're going to come to that place because he starts to, right after that, he asks a question. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? I mean, I think he meant Jacob I love, Esau I've hated, because he knows that the next question that's going to come into your mind and my mind is, I don't think I like that. Is there unrighteousness in him? Is God, is he not all good? I mean, if he says something like that, I don't know what I think about that. I don't know if, I don't think I like that. I don't think I'm going to believe that. 
mean, even though it says it right there, I, there has to be another way of looking at this than Jacob I loved and Esau I've hated. So is there, is there unrighteousness with God? And the response that's given is certainly not. Oh, we're glad to hear that, aren't we? We look at it, and, and I mean, literally, it's, it's, it's as emphatic as it could be. Your King James Version may say, God forbid. Or, no, no, a thousand times no, that's not the case. It, there is no unrighteousness with God. And so he comes to that, he, he answers the question, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. And so we look at it and we say, okay, good, certainly not. And I, I would hope that that would be enough for all of us. That if we come to a place of, okay, from the same womb, God chose Jacob, but not Esau. They hadn't done anything good or bad at that particular time. But it's, God pur- it's his purposes according to election that might stand. And we look at it and we say, I, don't, I, can't, I can't reconcile all this. Jacob wasn't a great guy. He was the heel catcher. He was the one that deceived his, his father into giving him the blessing. He, you know, he, made himself look like his brother, went in, asked for the blessing. He's not a great guy either, but maybe God saw something in him. But it says no. It says it was before they were born. I don't know what to think about all this. Is there unrighteousness with God? And I I would hope that we'd look and hear God say, absolutely not, God forbid, certainly not, a thousand times no. No, 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 there is no unrighteousness with God. And then we'd look and we'd say, okay, that's good enough for me. He answers the question. But he goes on and he gives an explanation, a further explanation. Now, the further explanation is not the explanation that most of the way that we think would be. It's not, okay, well, there really is two nations, and I didn't really mean it that. Maybe I was too harsh when I said it like that. The explanation doesn't go in that direction at all. The explanation goes, he says, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. So he asks the question, is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. And then he quotes, just quotes scripture. You're going to find this all throughout this chapter where he says something. He says something that kind of rocks our world. The way that we think, our man-centeredness, the way that we view ourselves is, is so high that anybody going to hell seems like it shouldn't be all that fair. But then he gives an explanation that just says, and this is what scripture says. When he goes through, he's not saying, let me give you some philosophical reasoning to explain these things. And you'll hear philosophers go through and say, okay, well, we can't believe it like this because philosophically it just messes up with my whole system. We don't base our theology on our philosophy. We don't base it on how our mind's able to comprehend and reconcile all these things. We base it on our theology of what does the text say? And he goes directly to scripture where he says, To Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. Now, you remember, this is coming from Exodus 33, where Moses goes up on the mountain, and what are God's people doing down below? They're, they're making idols. They're doing all these things to where they're taking their jewelry, and, and they're making an image, and they're worshiping the image. And Moses comes down, and what happens? God, God kills 3,000 of them at one time. And so they're looking at, Moses is looking, there's like 3,000 people just got obliterated. And now here I am, and I'm afraid. What's God going to do to me? He goes up there, and, and, and he comes back up, and he, he says, 
he says to God, if your presence doesn't go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight? How are we going to know that we're okay? How are we going to know that we found grace in your sight? We, you just obliterated 3,000 people. How do I know that I'm okay? And God says, as a response, um, where Moses said, just, can you show me your glory? Can you just show me your glory? God says in Genesis 33, 19, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. That's where the text comes from. Right before God displays himself to Moses in all of his glory, he's saying, Okay, just so you know, I'm going to show you my glory, just a portion of it, the backside. You, I'm going to hide you in the cleft, and I'm going to pass by, and you'll be able to see a little bit of it, just so you know. I recognize I just killed 3,000 people, but just so you know, I'll have mercy on whoever I'll have mercy. It's not based upon how good you are. It's not based upon whether you've done enough. I'm going to have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. You see it where Jesus is speaking in Matthew chapter 20 where he's talking about the, the kingdom of heaven and, and, and this landowner where he goes out and he hires these people and he hires one and they agree on a wage and then he hires one later on and he hires another later on and later on in the day it's the 11th hour and he sees some that are sitting by idle and they're there and they... They says, he says, why are you, you idle? And they say, well, no one's hired us. So he hires them. And he also pays them the full amount. And, and everybody's upset. Like, we worked all day. They worked for one hour. You gave them the full amount. And Jesus says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? Is it not lawful for me to do what I want to do? And so we look at it where... None of us deserve to spend eternity in heaven. All of us are going in a direction totally and completely opposite of him. And God says, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. Do I not have a right to show mercy to whom I will? And it's not that there's all these people going in the opposite direction really wanting to follow Christ. Scripture says the complete opposite. Scripture says that whosoever comes to him, he would in no way cast out. But mankind is going in a direction totally, completely opposite of him. They hate him. They want nothing to do with him. He tells us, Romans 3, there's none that seek me. None of them do. In verse 16 of Romans chapter 9, he says, so then, so to summarize these things, so then, it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but God who shows mercy. This verse is important to us. Because if your interpretation of this text brings you to a place of, okay, this is how I think about it. I think that God looks into the future, sees all the decisions that we're going to make, sees what we decide, how good we are, what we end up doing, and therefore he elects us before the foundations of the world. 
If that's where you come to as far as trying to reconcile these things, I, I think that this verse is the death blow to that particular doctrine. You see here, it's, it's not of him who wills. It's not based on that. It's not of how well you run, but it's based on God who shows mercy. It's not based upon us. It's not based upon what we are able to muster up on our own or what we're able to do. It's based upon a God who shows mercy to where that brings me to, oh, how he loves me. It wasn't based upon my goodness. It was based upon him. I mean, he put me in my family and he surrounded me with people that proclaimed the gospel or he brought me to that lowest point or he did whatever he did and he caused light to shine out of darkness, to shine in my heart, to give me the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and it was him. He took me who was dead and he made me alive. It was God that did it and it wasn't because I deserved it. It was just a God who shows mercy. Then he says again, quote scripture, Romans 9, 17, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Now we look at this and he goes now to, okay, let's talk about what the scripture says to Pharaoh. Is Pharaoh someone who's good? No. Pharaoh's the guy in whom you see Moses saying, let my people go. And what does he do? I will not let your people go. There's plague upon plague upon plague that comes upon him. And God tells him in in Exodus chapter 9, stretch out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. He says, "If if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I've raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. And then hail comes down upon them. This is partway through the judgments, the plagues that are coming upon him where he says, I could have destroyed you earlier, but I'm going to let you keep going because I'm going to show my power in you. And does he do that? He's very successful in doing that. I mean, you look at it and everybody looks and they think the, the 10 plagues, what happened? The opening of the Red Sea and God's people going through. And the Pharaoh's heart is hard and tells us that God hardened his heart. But it also tells us over and over again that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It wasn't that Pharaoh's the, the victim that's here. Pharaoh's heart is incredibly hard and he continues to harden it. And he's running away from God. But God says, for this very purpose I raised you up that I might show my power in you. And it's not that he saved him. He was going to come bring judgment upon Pharaoh over and over again. I mean, you, you look at the plagues and, and you think like, man, if that was me, I would just let the people go. I mean, like water turning to blood, flies all over the place. You know, I just, okay, okay, enough. Like, this is brutal. But his heart just gets harder and harder. So he makes this reference to Pharaoh. And then he brings another conclusion. Therefore, verse 18 He has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. Therefore, whoever he desires to show mercy to, he shows mercy to. And if he desires to harden them, he'll harden them. And you might come to a place of like, I don't think I like that either. I I mean, Pharaoh, God hardened him? It tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but it clearly says, God says, He has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. And then he says in verse 19, so then you're going to say to me this. 
I know what you're thinking, God says. You're going to say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? How could God send Pharaoh to eternity in hell if God hardened his heart? How could he still find fault in Pharaoh? Who's resisted his will? How can he do that? Good question. The response that's given is not the response that most of us would think of. God doesn't respond by saying, well, let me just tell you about how bad Pharaoh really was and that that's not really what I did and this is what really happened. He doesn't say that. His, his answer is, but indeed, oh man, who are you to reply against God? That's radical to me. I mean, I, uh, there was a time I, I just struggled through Romans chapter 9. Like these doctrines, I have a hard time with these things. There came a point for me where I, I got to Romans chapter 9, verse, verse 20, where I just read, but indeed, oh man, who are you to reply against God? I mean, he says it so clearly. So who am I to say, I don't like that, and I wish you weren't like that, and I wish you were like this, and this chapter, I don't even know about this chapter, but then when I see it throughout Scripture as a whole, I, I don't believe any of this stuff is where some people come to the conclusion of Because in their minds, their view of what is right is higher than what God's view of what is right is. Not understanding his sovereignty, not understanding our sin, not understanding his holiness, and not understanding this great salvation in which he has loved us, in which he has drawn us. To where, if you're struggling through these things, there comes a place where God just says, okay, who are you to reply against me? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called God in the Dock. The dock, meaning they're up on the stand in a jury trial in which he's there and there's questions that are coming against him. Okay, what about this? And how come that? And what about this thing? And why is there evil? And why is there... And the point is, is that we don't put God in a dock like that. I hear people say, when I go to heaven first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get right there and I'm going to say like, okay, I want some answers and I want to know why you did this and why you did that. Why? And I just think, well, you have no idea who he is. You're not going to be doing any of that. Your view of yourself is way too high and your view of God is way too low because you're not going to go up there and point your finger at him and do anything. And so God brings us to a place of who are you to reply against God? And so if you're struggling through these doctrines, there has to come a point where you just say like, all right, I'm just going to stop talking. My mouth will be shut. I... I'm going to just say, this is a mystery to me. I don't know how this all works out, but I know he's good. I know he's holy. I know he saved me. And I don't understand. I mean, why, why isn't everybody going to heaven? It's according to his good pleasure that he called you. Be thankful. Leave this place by saying, oh, how he loves me. And if it brings you to a place of love, I got a problem and I want answers and I want, there will come a point where you'll come to this particular verse and say, but indeed, oh man, who are you to reply against God? And that's where honestly, I just think that you got to stop and just step back and say, some of these things I'll find out in eternity and I'm okay with that. Some of these things I'll just say, it's, it's, it's mystery to me and I don't know, but I know he's good. I know he's powerful. I know he's in control of all things. I know he loves me. I know he called me. He tells me all of these things in scripture and I'll stop. I'll stop. I'm not going to put you in a place where I'm going to 
point my finger and start demanding answers from God. You say things in this chapter that I don't totally understand, but it's because I have a wrong view of myself and I have a wrong view of you and my view of myself needs to change and my view of you needs to change, God, to where these things are in a place where I can at least step back and say, I'm okay, I, I'll, I'll, I will worship you, both now and forevermore. Who are you to reply against God? Will the thing form say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Powerful. Brings us to a place of God saying like, I took this, this lump of clay, which is you and it's me, and I, I fashioned it and I made it to be one in whom I would see Christ, my son, and his righteousness. And I wouldn't see their sin. And I had mercy on them. I had compassion on them. I saved them. I made it so that they would spend eternity with me. And it's such, in such a way that I get all the glory for their salvation because they would have been like everybody else going in a direction opposite of me. They would have continued in that had I not drawn them unto myself by the Holy Spirit. And I come to a place and looking at this just saying, oh, how he loves me. We've gone long, um, partly because I just felt like we needed to get through this particular text. It's one question after another. So let's pray and we'll close with one song as we close. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. And, and um, a text that's powerful. text that's difficult to understand, but a text also that brings us to a place of, oh, how you love us. You love us. You called us. You saved us. You had compassion on us. It wasn't based on the will of man. It wasn't based on our blood. It wasn't based on anything that we could ever do, but it was based on your mercy. It was based on your grace. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. And when things are difficult as we try to look through these things, Lord, may we never have a place where we start pointing the finger at you and demanding answers from you, but may we just stop and recognize your greatness, your sovereignty, and that all of this life and our salvation is all of grace. May we be people who love grace and conclude with chapters like this by saying, oh, oh, how you loved us. Just as you did Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Just as you have done throughout the millenniums. You have loved us and revealed yourself to us and called us And it's all by grace. Lord, we praise you for the salvation that we have and that you have saved us. May our hearts overflow with praise now as we sing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.